So welcome everybody to another Meet the Author. We've got a great show in store and I'm gonna hand it right off to you, Gary. Great, thanks Tamara. Well, welcome everyone that can join us. The book that we're gonna be talking about today is Safety Performance Reimagined, a 4D approach to organizational performance. The authors are Brett Reed and Rod Ritchie. I'm pleased that Brett is able to join us from Perth, West Australia, where it's, I think it's 11 o'clock p.m. So thank you for staying up and joining us, Brett. Not a problem. Great. I'm gonna really jump into the, into the book right now and ask, and ask why, why, why did you and Rod decide to write this book? I, I read that it's meant to be a wake-up call. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, Rod and I have worked together for 20 odd years and, and um, worked with a couple of people that are attending here. David Allison and Graham Laurie have, um, have both been colleagues of Rod's and clients of mine in the past. And um, so we've done a lot of work around the world. Um, and, and the things I'll talk about in the that I talk about in the book and uh, I'll talk about tonight are not just academic concepts or unproven theories. These are, are things that we've been doing for 20 years and continually refining and trying to develop frameworks as to why we do what we do. And I, I like that saying that's, that um, you, know, you, can have a, you can have a framework or you can have guesswork. And if you, if you have a framework that guides what you do, it, it takes the guesswork out of what you're doing. And um, so we thought it would be useful for us to share the things that we've been developing and working with and, and proving that, that work. Um, the concern we had that caused us to do this is, is really covered in the preface of the book. And I'll just read a paragraph from the preface, and which I think might be useful for people to understand our motives. So we say that um, the conventional safety approach is based on a misguided view that sees people as a problem to be controlled and errors and accidents as anomalies that must be controlled through ever increasing layers of systems and volumes of rules and procedures that must be complied with. This approach has resulted in the ratios of HSE compliance jobs increasing dramatically over the last two decades. But our industries are not getting safer. Serious injury and fatality accident rates are actually going up. Now that's certainly the result in Australia and in the book I quote statistics from Safe Work Australia 2018, the fatality statistics by industry and, and they definitely are on the rise. I had a look at statistics from the US um, authorities that, that are tracking this as well. And, I, and um, I think Rosa reports these in her book as well on the, the relationship factor that um, show a similar thing is happening in the, in the uh, US. So um, Graham and David Allison, you could probably, you, probably are more in tune with the UK results, but I think similar things are happening in the, in the UK, that um, the, the bureaucracy is increase, increasing, but serious injuries and fatalities are not actually going down. Yeah, so, so what do other people on this call feel? Do we actually need a wake up call? 
Are things just humming along just fine? What do you think? Lisa, I see you're on the line. Any comments, thoughts about that? Okay. I think I think it's a continuous uh, process because um, uh, lessons are learned, lessons are forgotten. So mm. I don't think it's a wake up calling. It's just a continuous, <laughs> a continuous thing that happens. So um, the, the approach that uh, Brett and Rod developed certainly is a, a way of getting to that fourth dimension is certainly a, a, an evolution of how we've been thinking over the, over the years. But I think it's a continuous thing that just has to keep happening, unfortunately, because people retire, people join, things change continuously. I think it's something we have to appreciate as well, the value of, of these sort of books that uh, Brett and Rod are writing. There are new people always coming on and us old salts, we kind of know what's going on, but they don't. And sometimes we don't have the opportunity to share what we know with them. So thank God that um, we have books like these. Maybe they're not new ideas, but as Brett says, these are frameworks. And quite often I find that I get great value and enjoy reading these books because they take maybe pieces that I know about here, but they kind of thread them together into some sort of a different sort of fabric. And all of a sudden I get light bulbs going off going like, gosh, I never thought about it that way here. So thank you very much for that. Well, Brett, there's, there's kind of three parts in your book. In part one, you explain why conventional safety has failed us. So from your perspective, where do we go off the rails? Yeah, thanks, Gary. So in part one of the book, and certainly the title page for part one identifies what we see as being wrong or, or the issues um, around the failings that we're seeing. And so the title page for part one, we say that the issue is that we're focusing on what's gone wrong instead of focusing on what's missing. Um, and in that chapter, we talk about, uh, we mentioned uh, Marie DeVos, who's from Leiden University Medical Center. And she uses a power, powerful analogy that some people have probably seen. And she says that our current approach to safety and to injury prevention, it's, she says, it's like we've been trying to learn about marriage by only studying divorce. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's a, it just nails the issue that, you know, um, I don't know, you know, everybody, everybody has had their own experience of relationships and, and um, um, bust ups and whatever. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I've been married now for uh, 15 years and um, my second marriage. Um, but, um, you know, I, I know there was a number of things that um, didn't work so well in the first marriage and, um, and I looked at just improving those um, and working on what are all the things that I want to be doing that creates a really good marriage. And a lot of them are very similar to the leadership that creates performance in organisations. You know, alignment and being on the same page, sharing the same values and, and views. So uh, that, that quote really resonated with me. But um, we, we talked about three things in, um, in, that, uh, in that first part of the book. And we said that, so we've been tracking what's going wrong. Um, and typically that ends up with us blaming people. The second point that was that any system that blames people is a flawed system. 
So we know that humans are fallible, they make mistakes. Any system that, that is designed with the expectation that people will never make a mistake is clearly a poorly designed system. Our systems need to be resilient to be able to cope with human error and still operate safely. And the third point was that we need, we need to um, focus on mastery. So what are the things that people do and the characteristics we need in our systems to ensure that things go well? Not going right, and Eric Holnagel in, in his book, Safety One and Safety Two, made that distinction pretty clearly. In the early days, he used to talk about things going right. And then as he focused more and more on people as, and resilience of people and their adaptability, he started to talk about things going well. So, you know, when we're talking about the technical aspects in business, linear uh, type systems, I think it's appropriate to say, are things going right? But when you start talking about complexity and, and socio-technical systems, we want to talk about and think about things going well, as opposed to just being that binary or linear right or wrong approach. So, so that's, that's the first part of the book, identifying where the gaps are. All right. Lisa, I see that you've got a comment there about um, first break all the rules book. Would you like to uh, open up your mic and just maybe share a few words about that? Thanks, Gary. I had noise behind me, so forgive me for rudely ignoring your request to come on earlier. It's so good to see you all. Um, yeah, well, for this was an early on Gallup book by Cunningham, and he had, um, this was before all the talk with safety too, or before it became, you know, quite popular. And basically, uh, he and a couple of researchers from Gallup talked to outstanding performers in their field. Uh, and the, the greatest um, story that's told is of um, Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods had been interviewed about his golf game and asked if he, after the game, looks back at what goes wrong. And he looked completely surprised by the question. He said, I always rewatch my tapes, but I look at what I do well and I seek to replicate it. And sure enough, those same stories came through in all that you know, were outstanding in their fields. It didn't mean they didn't have opportunity for development, but they, they sat on and optimized their strength. And uh, it's just neat to see safety moving in that direction and recognizing there's great value there. Nice, nice comments. Thanks, thanks for that, Lisa. So, Brett, you, you mentioned about social technical approach and that's kind of like part two of your book there. And that's where you introduce the concept of four dimensions of safety to navigate complexity. Can you take us through what these four dimensions are? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Gary. Um, yeah, so part two of the book we focus on socio-technical safety and, and you know there's not a i don't think there's a business in the world these days that that isn't actually a socio-technical system and certainly any of the high risk industries oil and gas mining uh, utilities construction um, and especially construction projects you know we're, we're talking about complex socio-technical systems so um, the four-dimensional approach that we've come up with is, is just a, it's our framework for how we think about a socio-technical system. 
And the, the first, in page, on page 38 of the book, we discuss the three-dimensional approach, which is the standard approach that most people learn if they go and do a, a project management qualification or you studying a, a, a business degree, a MBA, then we tend to learn um, about three dimensions or the first three dimensions, which are very much the objective world and very much around technical skills. And the way I like to think of it is if you find a, a, re a resource, so in oil and gas or mining, you go drilling and you find a oil deposit or a gas deposit, or you find an iron ore or a um, you know, nickel deposit, um, then the first thing, the first dimension that you look at is, well, what's, what are the resources there? What are the reserves and what's the production capability from that? And also then you look at the schedules for what we can do with that. So, you know, how much have we got and how much could we produce from that per year and how long would that mine or, or that well produce for? The second dimension of that is, and what would that cost and what resources would we need to make that happen? And then the third dimension is what systems and processes do we need to make all of that work? So they're the first three dimensions. And we talk about those as being the technical skills and it's the world of management. We manage all of those things. The, um, the fault we see is that there's a lot of companies that think that that is enough. They focus on these three dimensions and they really, where they plug people into that is in each of those areas, they plug people in. So dimension one with production, people are just a factor of production. And then in dimension two, people are just a, a resource and a cost to the company. So if we can reduce these costs by reducing people, we're managing the business on, on that second dimension. And the third dimension, we have all kinds of systems and processes for managing training matrices and measuring technical competency. So it's very much a management approach. But what, what we say and what we've seen is that you can, you can manage these things really well and still have a major accident event. These three dimensions are not drivers of performance. They don't create, nor do they drive performance. They simply enable performance. It's the fourth dimension, which is people and leadership, safety leadership and, and psychological safety that good leaders create that actually drives and creates performance. The analogy we use is that if you look at aviation, the first three dimensions put a perfectly safe, well-designed and well-maintained plane on the runway, ready to take off. And it'll take you to wherever you need to go. Yeah. And if you put a good pilot in there, you'll get to your destination. But if you don't manage those first three dimensions right, the enablers of performance, the best pilots in the world can't do much if the wings fall off the aircraft mid-flight. They're going to ride that plane to the scene of the crash. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that the best pilots in the world, um, sorry, when you, you get perfectly good and maintained aircraft, then you put pilots into it. And there's pilots who, I lived in the Highlands of New Guinea for two years. And I, while I was there, there was two aircraft crashes where pilots flew perfectly good aircraft into a mountain. And you know, pilots crash perfectly good aircraft in, into the ground 
on a regular occurrence around the world. So nothing wrong with the aircraft. The first three dimensions were done just right and the fourth dimension is flawed. So both of them are necessary, but it's only the fourth dimension that actually creates performance. The first three dimensions just enable that performance. Yeah, I, I really like your statement that you've got in the book where you say these three dimensions create compliance with the system, but not commitment to a value. I think that really sums it up really nicely for me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and that's exactly the, the point that we, we, need, we need all of them. Yeah, Tanya, you're having a really interesting conversation on the chat panel about negative bias. Can you tell us what you're talking about there? So, as people, we tend to, to like, well, we, we have a, a penchant for negativity. Like the, the, we, we do have a hardwired bias. You know, a, a lot of this comes from evolution and the fight or flight and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, we're not running from uh, any, any kind of physical threat the way that our evolution suggests that we might still be doing. Um, we have retained this negative bias in, in our informatic age. And that is, is showing up in a lot of what we're talking about here, that we are very focused on what's going wrong. Uh, I mean, it, and it was fine when a lot of the threats were physical, you know, but we're talking thousands of years of evolution where this hasn't been the case and we haven't adjusted our thought processes mm -hmm. in order to try to be able to see a more holistic picture. Yeah, yeah, good thoughts. Rosa, I see that you, you've joined us. What we were talking about beforehand was this fourth dimension that Brett came up with about relationships. And of course, I know this is your sweet spot here. So. Would you like to share any thoughts? Because I know you know Brett and you've had some chats. Can you give us some of the little secrets that you talked about? It's, uh, I don't think they're, uh, they're secrets because uh, everyone has experienced them, right, Brett? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we want to share them. So if they are a secret, we want to make sure that they don't remain that way, that more and more people understand them. Great, yes. great. Mm -hmm. Well, I will, I will join in as the conversation continues. I feel a little bit out of context, so can I comment later? I wanted to pipe in here because I think, Tanya, what you bring up, uh, the, the constant focus on negativity, is something that I find very intriguing. Um, I used to be very negative focused, and then I met a friend that you know kind of enlightened me about always trying to be more positive because it's better for our mental health and it and really took me to shift my habit of thinking and now i find it really unsettling to when people are focusing on those negatives so you know i don't know lisa maybe with your your background if, if there's something that we could be doing to help people get out of that mindset and into more of a positive mindset like i'll be really brief with that i i, I think uh, tanya hit the evolution of it and i think it does stem back to the fact that 
that we have an animal nature and it is protective of our survival. And as a consequence, we look at where the risk is in our environment, but bringing it to contemporary, we also have the ability to cognate and uh, you know, Gary can speak to that too. Um, so I have trained myself and, and the participants I've worked with on you know, trying to break those habits of immediately leaving an activity and think about it. We typically evaluate by saying, oh shoot, I didn't do that and I forgot to do this. We go to the negative. And I stop myself now and immediately push myself, Lisa, hit what you did well. And we can do that with our colleagues, with our peers, with our teams, with our families, uh, and get people to focus on the positive and fight that inclination to go to negative. And only then when we go to the constructive to try and position it. And so what would you do next time to make it more effective? So they're future oriented. How are they going to evolve themselves to succeed next time? It's a very different animal than looking at the past and what we screwed up. Good thoughts, good thoughts. Anybody else want to um, talk a bit about uh, social technical approaches, negative biases before we move on? Well, Gary, if I could just add there with that too, that I, I think the, I, I definitely agree with, um, Tanya's point that humans can be can very quickly go to the the, the things that, that cause them fear or concern cause them anxiety and, and angst around what what might harm them. But um, you know, David Allison, who's here as well, and I share a, a we have a shared background in that David Allison was a HSE manager for Petroleum Romania, um, OMB Petrom as it uh, as it was, and and uh, we worked for David to help turn around a culture that was having, I think the 2005, we started working there and, and um, the year before they had 14 fatalities in one oil company and year upon year before that, they'd had between 10 and or 10 plus fatalities. And uh, over a five year period, we really changed that culture where 2010 was the first year that without a fatality and of course, all the, the incidents came down in that time. And we did that through leadership. And, uh, but, you know, Romania is a company that had 1988, they overthrew Ceausescu, who was a dictator there and a Soviet, it was a Soviet um, satellite state. And people just disappeared in the middle of the night if they spoke out and, and put their hand up and dissented in any way. So trying to get people to stop the job and speak up I think you'd agree, David. We we had a lot of conversations on that, didn't we? We had to do a lot of work to to get people to step out of that fear. But humans, what I've seen around the world is when people start to see that the world around them is changing and that there is psychological safety, they grasp that so quickly and and are willing to be quite courageous to speak up and do something different. I think the, uh, the, the I think the first thing we have to do. Uh, Brett, if you recall, is actually teach the supervisors how to speak to people. Yeah, because uh, yeah. The, the culture there was that they, they didn't actually speak to people. They, they, if they even spoke to them at all, they lectured them up, just told them what to do. So there was very little by way of, of guidance. It was just giving orders or giving reprimands. So the first thing we had to do was teach them actually how to speak. And we had Carla, yeah. Carla had make, made some videos to demonstrate how to talk to somebody. So that was 
that was a very important step just to break that communication barrier. Yeah. And would that, would that be something like shared values or, or like collective vision? Like Carrie, is there anything that line of thinking? Were you, ten, Tamara, were you addressing that to Gary or to us? Well, to, uh, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm just kind of thinking about your book and stuff. And is there like, there's, that's something that you also talk about in there, isn't it? Um, I can't remember exactly. It's a framework yeah. or something. Maybe yeah. you guys could help yeah. me out to jog my memory. The third part of the book, we talk about six factors that create relationship and achievement. Yeah. This you. is very strongly aligned with the work that Rosa does. So creating that relationship base where you can then focus on achievement. And, you know, it's, it's the difference between just demanding um, performance from people as a factor of production versus how do we collectively come together, the relationship base that's going to support the achievement that we want. And we definitely had to do that. And that was, and the supervisors are the people that do that. So we had to teach the supervisors how to do that and how to, how to create that level of psychological safety with the workforce. And, 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 there, were two, and there were 2,000 of them to teach. Yeah, 2,000 supervisors. Originally. Hi, Rosa. Hi, I'm wondering what you think about this because um, who, uh, who has to have psychological safety first in an organization in order for this to happen? It took me yeah, a yeah. long time to, to become psychologically safe because I grew up in very uh, difficult circumstances. Uh, and so I really was one of those people that caused a lot of conflict and uh, I, I, I wanted to be understood rather than understand. I, I wanted to control because of the outcomes. Uh, and uh, it, it, I, I've, I mean, who I am now compared to who I was then is, is really not the same person because now I'm not afraid to uh, ask, oh, uh, did I offend you? May, uh, you know, what was it that I said? How could I have said it in a different way? Which is a conversation that I could not have had when I was uh, a young manager. What, what do you think about that process? Yeah, I, I've thought quite a lot about psychological safety and I've read Amy Edmondson's book um, um, it's uh, what's, what's it called again fear um, fearless organization yeah and um, I love the work that she's done and and um, and it makes so much sense for me and aligns very much with what we've done as well back in 2000 to 2002 I did a lot of work with uh, Dr. Keith Owen, who is from, he's from Austin, Texas, and uh, University of Texas. And then Austin, he was, he was uh, the head of psychology at Austin Community College. And um, so he was really, he was my, uh, while I'm not a, a trained psychologist, I, I've studied a lot under Keith and done a lot of work with him. And, and he was my um, accelerated learning introduction to, all the different fields or different fields of psychological safety and organizational psychology. And um, I, I'm absolutely of the view that it's leadership that drives psychological safety. Psychological safety is very much an output 
it's the same as teamwork in an organisation. You know, teams and teamwork uh, are really an expression of psychological safety in my mind. And both of them exist as a result of leadership practices. You know, you, you don't, and, and you don't get either of them by focusing on them. You don't get teamwork by focusing on teamwork. You focus on the things that, that create the environment where people feel safe to operate within a team. And as opposed to just being a group of individuals looking after their own backside. Um, and psychological safety is very similar to that. It's the same thing. It's an output that leaders create. Mark? Yes, but my point was that it's impossible to create psychological safety for your team if you don't have psychological safety yourself. Am I, I want to throw that out to the group because there, there's all of this conversation in the chat about how we are constantly sensing our, uh, you know, is, am I, you know, is this a psychologically safe environment for me to speak or to, you know, contribute to? Um, but who does that for the leader? Um, well, if I just, I remember um, in working in NASA after the Columbia shuttle disaster, I've never seen such a strong culture and a concern um, for safety. Everyone knew the astronauts, everyone from the security guard at the front gate knew them and everyone was committed to getting them back to this planet, you know, safe. Um, and there was psychological safety. Everyone who was familiar with either issues with the O-ring or issues with um, uh, the foam leaving the solid fuel bo uh, booster, they spoke up. They spoke up right until the evening before when they said, if you go ahead with this, we, I will not, I'm not going to be there. There was no unsafety. There was no interpersonal concern or worry about doing or saying the right thing. Um, you just had the wrong person making the decision. And the one thing I'll say about Tiger Woods is about self-reflection and looking on the good things. Well, everyone else in the field does that too. That doesn't lead to them being the winner at the end of the day. And I think that's what happened at NASA. They looked at all the good things. They said, wow, <laughs> we lost all these pieces of foam in 26 previous launches. And we launched it and uh, recovered the solid fuel booster. And we saw that there was burn marks on the O-ring. <clears throat> how great are we? How good, we, how, <laughs> how well did we engineer this beast until it blew up? So you looking for the bad stuff and ignoring it and just focusing on the good, which is what they did which was the result, um, led to that happening. And let me just add to that, if I can, Gary, that um, I, I totally agree with my, what Michael's saying there. And I think that is the difference between focusing, just focusing on the good. So people think that the flip side or the alternative to focusing on what goes wrong is just to focus on the good. It's actually not. And I take a lot of, I've done some martial arts in my, in my earlier days and I've got a, one of my best friends is, um, he's a, he runs a Japanese school, a Japanese sword school here in, in Perth and he's, he's been inducted into the Hall of Fame. We used to do karate and taekwondo together and he's continued on all of his life and run, he runs this dojo and he goes and studies in Japan so he's been inducted in the Martial Arts Hall of Fame and um, he, you know, his whole approach to his martial arts is about mastery. It's not about being, um, not just focusing on what, you know, on the good stuff. It's, 
it's being the best that he can be. And he doesn't compare himself to other people. He tries to learn from other people, but he's constantly looking at, I think I can do something. I think I can be better than this. How do I do that? How do I achieve that? And if I look at NASA and Challenger Columbia or BP with Texas City or Macondo or any one of these incidents, they all have that similar theme that they knew multiple, multiple things were far from the ideal. They were nowhere near the definition of mastery and they tolerated them and convinced themselves that it wouldn't be a problem. And, and it, it is, it does become a problem and, and, it's, and it catches them out. That would be my, my short take on it. Yeah, and, and I think they did recognize the problem, but then they had to choose between two problems. And one was, can we manage to, um, for us to be economically viable, um, given the constraints that Congress were putting on them, um, that they had to be, um, we, have to, we need to have 27 launch dates. If we don't have 27 launch dates a year, then we're not going to, our funding stops. So it, they, were both, they were both survival issues. Do we survive as an entity um, if we economically are deemed to be unviable because those are the metrics that were established or that's how they were being assessed? Um, do I choose that and say, we can't do that? Or do we say, we'll, sub, we'll send the up um, astronauts into, in, in, our, in our shuttles in suboptimal conditions? So th they were, I think they were choosing between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I, I'm very critical of leaders in those situations who do that because I think they lack the courage and the wisdom or the, the innovate, ability to innovate that they need to. And um, you know, NASA suffered from that. The Australian SAS are going through that here. It's probably been, it's been in the news worldwide, I think, with war crimes, investigations and charges, the, the risk of charges for the, the threat hanging over people's soldiers' heads of charges being laid for war crimes. And I look at that as the generals and these guys who are generals now that are in the news, I was a major in the SAS with those guys. I mean, in fact, I, I was about two years ahead of them. I was as an instructor on their special forces selection course when, when they got selected. They're now running the chief of the defense force and chief of the army. And they failed the people under them. They absolutely failed them. No different to what Lord John Brown and, and um, um, John Manzoni did in PP with Texas City. Um, they had a job to do and they didn't have the courage to do it. And uh, you know, an example of someone who, doesn't, who didn't do that and who's a, an incredible performer at, that, at, at elite level is Toto Wolf, who's the um, team principal of the Mercedes AMG Formula One team. And you know, he took over, the, so they've just won, last year they won seven world championships in a row. No other team has ever done that. They're this, now the second highest winning team to Ferrari. And um, I don't think Ferrari even has won seven championships in a row. So under Toto Wolf's leadership, they've done that. But he talked, there's a great video on YouTube if you want to have a look at it. He talked about when he took over the team, he was, before that, he was with Williams' team, you know, a previously hugely successful team. And when he went to Mercedes, um, they, uh, Mercedes said to him, we're bringing you on as a team principal because we want to win. We want to be the best. We want to dominate in our field and, and create a winning environment. And he went back and looked at it 
and he went back to his managers and just stepped them through and said, so you want to win. Um, how committed are you to that? Are you serious about that? Yes, we are. We're committed. He said, well, how do you expect to do that when the budget that you're giving me is a fifth of what I had at Williams? And Williams was not expecting to be the number one team. They wanted to just be in the top three with five times the budget that you're giving me to win. And he got them to, he said, we either step out of Formula One, if it's win at all, you know, win or nothing was what they were saying. He said, let's step out and shut the team down or give me a, a reasonable budget to let me do it. And had NASA's leadership done that, I don't think we would have had Challenger or Columbia. I wouldn't mind. I, uh, I like, a, go ahead, Gordon. Uh, sorry, Rosa, I just wanted to make a comment to your, to your, uh, uh, your comment in the in the chat about about leaders being you know who 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 graduates the leader to be psychologically safe who who sets that tone and you know what, what's interesting to me is I'll use the construction industry as an example the general public want the home of their dreams for the for the cheapest dollar that they can pay for it for the shortest mortgage. And, and what that does, that sets, a, that sets a societal tone for the rest of us. And, and those leaders of those construction companies, those leaders of, of uh, the, regulatory, uh, the regulators, the, the OH&S officers, the, the people that, that make up our, you know, our checks and balances, our sober second thought, these are the, these are the, we all get influenced by this. We're influenced by this, by, by, by our, our, our very, you know, our very uh, cultural connection with our community. And so until we decide that it, it, it is, it's not right for 21 year old people to fall off scaffolding or, or not having proper ladders to work off of, instead of just going and charging the company and saying, okay, well, yeah, you, you didn't provide the scaffolding, so now the person's dead, so we go to court and we all feel good. Well, we don't all feel good, and we, we have not advanced. We are still, we are still have the sacrificial lamb of the, of the uneducated and the, and, and the folks that, that don't have somebody speaking up on their behalf, mm -hmm. and our leaders are still, our leaders are still uh, being um, affected, that psychological safety, they don't want to be the only leader that comes out and says, you know, your house is going to cost $10,000 more, but we're going to put scaffolding around that second story so that we don't have those people fall off that roof to their death. We, until we as a society value the, the, the service, the commodity, the product, whatever we are purchasing, until we, until we as a society do that as a group, yeah. our leaders are still going to be, are going to succumb to that that imbalance and they're going to look to the board of directors they're going to look at whoever makes their paycheck if we still have to remember people first and foremost you feed yourself you clothe yourself you put a roof over your head and until you are in that situation you will you will not appreciate the depth of what that means uh, it's only it's only through our advancement in society that we get to that we get to talk about this i worked at westray cold in 1991 and it blew up in 1992. And from the minute I went there, the, from the leaders on down, everything was a scripted game between the government and the company. And every worker that said anything out of line, you were immediately taken to task. 
So when I look at those, when I look at those, our situation here today, the only way we can overcome this is by is by a communal effort, and and which is what we're doing here today. I mean, really, a communal effort where enough people are speaking that there is momentum to overcome that. So the, so these leaders do feel psychologically safe to step out and be the person that that, like you said, Brett, makes those hard decisions. And I wanted to just, I just wanted to, um, Gordon, because you're bringing up something I was also thinking about being a community developer is community values. I'm not seeing that in our Western society where we have a strong collective society at the macro level value systems where we, we, it's like a hard stop right across the board, like you were saying about the construction site. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I'm just um, stunned that I never thought about that, uh, what we are talking about now in this way before that leaders are, uh, we can criticize them, but they are making decisions according to what makes them feel psychologically safe. Uh, and uh, this, so Gordon, you, you are absolutely right. But there are some people who have achieved that. And I would, I, my passion is working with uh, safety leaders, safe, safety professionals and managers uh, to achieve that degree of psychological safety because I, I think it can only come from within us. I don't think anybody else can create it for us. So ultimately, uh, perhaps only the real leaders have psychological safety because they are the ones who go against the grain. What do you, you know, what do you think about that? Well, um, what I wanna do, because I'm just managing the time here is I've got a couple of the topics that um, Brett and I wanna raise. So let me just do a quick summary of this. And um, again, we can talk about it later. Here's my point of view. Well, I, I feel that I just made a really important point yeah. Right. For our development, are you going to follow up on that? Right now, because I'm going to okay. say, I think what we're doing is navigating complexity. And what complexity means is that this isn't your question, Rosa, a linear hierarchical problem. It's a wicked problem. There actually is no real solution for that. It just keeps going circular. And when we talk about complexity, one of the key phenomena about complexity is no one person is in charge. Just think of the internet. When the internet breaks, who's that one person in charge? Who's psychologically safe? The answer is really not anybody because it's kind of circular. Let me leave it as that and we can come back to that in the chat, whatever, because I wanted now kind of go back to the book because in the book you've got a framework within a framework, Brett. You raise something called a CARES framework, C-A-R-E-S. So can you maybe talk a bit about that and maybe relate it back to the conversation we've just been having? Yeah, thanks, Gary, for sure. Uh, yeah, we, we have tried to, I guess it's a, a term would be codify what we do. And we, we've, uh, we've identified or developed a number of models, but we've also, uh, above that, we've developed a couple of frameworks and there are really three frameworks that we've developed in CARES was where we started from. And that came out of the research that I did with, with Keith Owen, 
where we, we, we started out by asking three questions and, and that was, um, so the, the three questions were, what leadership practices constitute superior performance? Now this was with three companies and we researched, we were doing uh, multiple regression analysis research with um, a thousand work groups, a bit more than a thousand and over 10,000 people. The second question was, how do superior leaders influence the performance of their work units? And the third was, how can organizations improve their leadership strengths? And what we found in that research was that the best performing teams, the leaders of those teams, did some specific things. They had a bunch of leadership practices that were common when, when we grouped them into factors, and they fell into two areas, and that was relationship-based, which aligns perfectly with, with what Rosa talks about. I mean, there's no, you, you could not get a cigarette paper between the, the definitions and the descriptions that, that Rose is using and what we found, that um, the, the relationships that people form create that environment where they can then have the meaningful conversations around what are we trying to achieve and how do we achieve that. That's a bit like the Toto Wolf conversation that he had with Mercedes around the funding that they weren't putting into Formula One. They just didn't understand. They were new to Formula One at that time. They were coming back after the, their exit from Formula One in the mid-1950s after that hor horrendous crash that they had at, um, in France and uh, where the, the car, burning car went into the um, crowds, the grandstand. And Mercedes are coming back into it and didn't understand the industry they're working in. So it's certainly about complexity. And, and our, our take on it is the only way to effectively deal with that complexity is through people. We're not smart enough. We don't, AI has not developed enough that our systems handle that complexity. It's still up to people to do that. And they can only do that when they have relationships where they can speak up and and actually have meaningful conversations. So um, that's the CARES model. The CARES stands for leaders create those uh, relationships. Um, well, the, the C is leaders create. What do they create? Well, firstly, they create an achievement orientation. That's the A, because this is business. We're not here just to, it's not a party. Uh, we have to achieve something. So they create the achievement orientation, but they do that by creating the relationship base that supports that. And the E is the endeavor. They don't use carrot and stick approach. The best performing teams, the highest performing teams did three things, totally aligned with Daniel Pink's drive book, and they create autonomy, mastery, and purpose um, is the endeavor. And the S in that is they do it sustainably. And when you get all those things right, you get sustainable performance. So that was the key framework. And um, the other two frameworks that we use is the four-dimensional approach, which I talked about before, and the integral approach, which comes from Ken Wilber's work on the theory of integral consciousness. And, you know, if you understand the difference between the objective side of your business and the subjective side, the difference between, say, intentions and behaviours, behaviours being objective, intentions being subjective, um, or at the group level, the difference between your systems and processes and the shared aspirations being the subjective things in the organisation that creates the systems and processes. So 
Um, working through those three frameworks is, is our solution. I wish there was one framework that, that would work for the, you know, give you an understanding of the whole lot. But unfortunately, organisations and people are too complex. We've found that we needed three to adequately explain it. And the, the analogy we use for that is when you're slicing an onion, you know, you can slice an onion from pole to pole or from 12 o'clock to six o'clock and you get this view of oval shape, you know, concentric lines, um, or you can slice the onion at 90 degrees to the, uh, from three o'clock to nine o'clock and you just get perfectly concentric circles. And, you know, two completely different views of the same objective thing. And then you can slice it on multiple different angles and get a different view again. So, um, you know, organisations are like that and frameworks allow you to slice the onion in different ways, slice the organisation and look at it from different perspectives. And that's, great, that's our- Great analogy, great analogy, Brett. Yeah, and the, um, I use this word too, to create relationships, but actually the relationships are already there. So maybe we should start saying unleash the relationships or, um, you know, let go because people want to be connected. People want the sense of belonging. So maybe yeah. what a leader does is uh, he or she makes it okay to do that. Yeah. What do you thought about it that way? We talk about leaders creating three levels of relationship. Firstly, with themselves, they need to have the courage to speak up. They need to, you know, be clear about. And and you know, for example, me, I'm writing the book now and speaking up. And I'm I've decided. Rod and I talked about it, and we said, well, we're both in our sixties, and we're going to be quite contrarians now. You know, we don't need to. We're not looking for the next job and uh, who's going to pay us. So let's rattle some cages and shake some things up and be contrarians and make a difference. So, um, and I wouldn't have had that courage to do that 20 years ago. Um, so that's my own little admission. You know, you have to get to a place where you are willing to be courageous or feel you can be courageous. Um, so your relationship with yourself is the first one. The second relationship is your ability to build relationships with others. Um, and I talk about that in the book, trust versus competency. And there's a, there's a nine window matrix in there. We've got time, we're probably gonna run out of time, but I could talk about that. But, and the third one is your relationship to whatever it is you're doing. In this case, safety. You know, do we understand the difference between the old view of safety or a you know, safety one versus a safety two view? And if you don't understand the subject, how effective can you be communicating that to the rest of your, the guys you're working with? So you need to have those three relationships happening. That's the way we express it. I don't know whether that resonates for you, Rosa. No, no, that does. I absolutely. Your your models are were really really helpful to me, uh, and I love Ken Wilber because he goes beyond the. Um, the tangible to the intangible, which is where we all work. And as human beings, we, we really prefer to be in the concrete uh, and, and linear world, right? Because we need certainty. And that's another part of psychological safety. You know, you, you can't feel psychologically safe in an uncertain world. 
So this is, uh, this is a really, really important conversation. And uh, I think everyone here who is participating, uh, we have that in common. We, we know yeah. that we have to arrive at the point where we develop the comfort, really. We call it courage, but it's really more like uh, knowing that mm. you're going to be okay. Yeah, and, and, and when I think about that, Rosa, um, when we talk about leadership, um, it that seems to me like a concept that we we have a hard time getting a common understanding for what exactly leadership is and when does leadership emerge and what is good leadership and what is bad leadership. Um, we are leaders, and, and because we we logged in today and we're concerned about safety. But if any of us have ever bought in a ten dollar T shirt, we are. We do that with a, a perhaps a blindness to the fact that that only happened because there was a 10-year-old child in Bangladesh making that. We're as guilty as the NASA engineer who said, launch tomorrow. So those 1,800 people who died in Reina Plaza only died because we in the Western world and all of us wanted a cheap t-shirt. And we did nothing about it. Individually, we ignore it. We pay no attention to it. And I think if we needed to stop that as a world, because we have to fix the way this world is going, particularly with climate change, <clears throat> we're not gonna do it by trying to change the individual consciousness and elevate the leadership of individuals. What we need to do is create fast and hard rules and design stuff that prevents that from happening. We could stop that tomorrow with one piece of legislation, but we yeah. don't do that. Yeah. And what we do is we leave it up to the consciousness of every individual in which case we'll still kill eight and 10 year old people, little girls and guys, little boys and women, particularly in the most unsafe, horrendous conditions. It would um, be good if our governments worked effectively to, to rule on those sort of things and, and you know, our regulators worked effectively. I, I wish we lived in a world like that. We, for sure. But we also have to say to ourselves, do we, do we abrogate that responsibility ourselves and, 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 uh, and we're complicit in it if we do that stuff, if we buy those goods? Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, Michael. Uh, hmm. My concern is that if we act or we expect politicians to make up the rules and regulations for that, we're practicing the first three dimensions. We're trying to put things into an order sort of system and hopefully everybody will comply. What we're now talking about, of course, is our very own fourth dimension. It's our own commitment to that value. And then what are we gonna do about that? Are we actually going to follow that rule or not here? I mean, we can just look at what's happened with COVID-19. Why has um, that become a political thing? Why has vaccination, immunization become a political thing at all? When if you just listen to the scientists who are in the three dimensions, we should just be rolling out our vaccinations with no problems at all. But that's not the real world. The real world, as we know, is complex. Great point, Gary. Yeah. No, it, uh, Gary, I was going to say that, you know, if, if you use the Kinefrin framework in a complex world there, when we're dealing with that, then we have to introduce constraints. Yes. We have to introduce constraints that's going to modify that behavior to allow for good decisions to happen. Um, it is a complex world and I know you have to experiment with that, but one of those experiments has to be not through individual behavior and trying to force everyone to think differently and change their buying habits, but is to at some level um, where you can affect the most um, 
most change is to use that as your lever. There has to be experiments at that stage. Yeah, yeah. So the old, so the old idea of you know the buck stops here, and we keep on looking up the chain of, of command, looking for that one person. It doesn't happen because it's circular, right? Because you can see that CEO is reporting to the board of directors, who's reporting to the shareholders, and the shareholders are responding to the public. Well, hey, that comes back down to us. So where does that circle? And that's why it's kind of, to me, it's a bit of a wicked problem. And we right. need to look for that value within ourselves and the leadership themselves to maybe make those changes. So just like, I have absolutely no experience in safety. Um, I, all of you have so much, much more experience than I do. Um, but what I realized when I was, when I was working in NASA after, on, as part of the, um, there was an initiative afterwards to examine cognitive biases and to examine those things that allowed bad decisions to be made. And for 18 months, we examined that. And what struck me most being there was how strong the culture was, how the notion of psychological safety, I've never seen anything so um, ingrained as it was there. It was like a family. If they cared about each other and the astronauts and the people going up more than, you know, than they might've cared about their family. That is not what caused that crash to happen. Mm -hmm. That's not what caused that disaster. And a focus on, on, on individual behaviors and creating psychological safety, would, it would, we would just crash the next one. Right. We're coming up to the top of the hour. So um, I'd like to give the last couple of minutes to Brett by asking him this question here. What would be your three takeaways you would like to leave with the viewers? Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, and, and just probably picking up on what Michael was saying there, that um, if you have a framework that is shared, shared meaning uh, within the people you're working with, then that allows you to work through issues and, and the problems in, the, in organizations. From my understanding, and I've read the reports on, on um, uh, Challenger and Columbia and, and use them as examples and case studies in uh, training over a lot of years. Um, I'm not sure, Michael, that there was true or, or very effective levels of psychological safety there right across the board. And if you look at the, you can go back through the first three dimensions and, um, um, and from the top down, you know, the way um, that uh, the Reagan administration was dealing with NASA um, and I don't, don't know, we, we, we're not going to have time to talk about it, but you know, I've read quite a lot about the pressure that was put, being put on NASA to, um, to launch uh, with, the, with the teacher in space. And um, I'm just trying to remember her name, but um, um, the female teacher that was to give lessons in space and the launch date, if they delayed it, was going to mean that she'd be um, orbiting on, on a weekend and not able to complete her lesson. So there's a lot of political pressure there. And, and the leaders at the top of NASA did not feel they had that level of psychological safety where they could push back against that. And that was certainly happening in BP with Texas City and Macondo. Senior leaders were not able to, to push back. So that would be my first point, that there's a lot of work to be done to really create that, that um, level of true understanding of what that means. Um, the second point, or the, another point that I would make, a takeaway that I'd leave people with is that just to keep continually focus on people and not the problems. 
And if we can't design systems that allow people to make an error and, and for the system to not fail and, um, and cause an accident, um, we're missing the point. And cars are, cars are a good example. The lane keeping capabilities, the braking capabilities of cruise control, all the things that are being built into cars, uh, while some people see them as a nanny function, um, they really are about allowing people to make an error, then it doesn't kill them. Or as much as possible, the system prevents them from being killed. The, um, the third one that I would leave people with is that um, making the changes that we, we need to make um, requires us to, to look a lot more at that complex interplay between people and technology. And that's what I'm doing. I've just, I don't know if people saw that on LinkedIn, but my company has just formed a partnership with a UK based company called Sysmax. And they measure, they are a global company. They have BP and PepsiCo and a number of other companies as clients, and they track technical safety. And they've got, they've got systems and processes, software design like flight simulators to test engineering and technical competency of people. And my company does non-technical skills. So we're now creating uh, a matrix that um, we have the software that allows companies to measure both the technical and the non-technical skills. And um, by focusing on that, we can deal with the linear complicated nature of things, um, the algorithmic problems that we face. And we can also deal with the heuristic issues of complexity. Uh, through non-technical skills. So that's the other area that I would say we really need to do more work in. Okay. Well, thanks, Brett, for that. Um, apologies for people like Greg, who are probably just signing on right now. We got bunged up by the daylight saving time. So we started an hour earlier. So Tamara, um, we're looking forward to your recording to blast it out there on LinkedIn so we can share this wonderful talk that you missed, Greg. Sorry about that. And then if there's any comments you want to put on that, you can certainly do that. Okay, Tara, over to you to close her up. Yeah, no, thank you, Gary. And thank you, Brett, for taking your time out of your night because you're up late with us and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. We're very honored that you chose to spend your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and um, to Rosa and Gary for making it, uh, or for working with me as well with it. It's um, Rosa for the connection there. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Great discussion. Thank you.